the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. As the people were in expectation and all men questioned in their hearts concerning John, whether perhaps he were the Christ, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form as a dove, and a voice came from heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, with thee I am well pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. This evening we are celebrating the baptism of the Lord, a continuation of his epiphany, his unveiling, wherein we magnify the Trinity made manifest in Christ's baptism. As Christ goes down into the waters of baptism, the Spirit descends and the Father speaks, declaring his love for his Son. This is the moment in which Christ's public ministry begins. As St. Peter says in our New Testament lesson, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. I've said before, Christ's baptism should cause us to ask a question. Why would Jesus get baptized? We say in the creed every week, I acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And the church also teaches that Jesus was sinless throughout his entire life, not even a hint of sin. So why does he undergo baptism? As the Presbyterian Frederick Bruner points out, this is Jesus' first recorded act as an adult. And it's very symbolic. Bruner says the first thing Jesus does for the human race is go down with it into the deep waters of repentance and baptism, which is to say in baptism, at the very least, Jesus is declaring his solidarity with humanity almost like it's a logical extension of his incarnation. But it's beyond that that things really start to get interesting because in the gospel accounts, when we encounter John the Baptist, there's always some sort of language about how he baptizes with water, but there's a powerful one coming after him, the Christ who will baptize with the Spirit. And what happens here is truly remarkable. John baptizes Jesus with water, but then the heavens are split open. The Spirit descends like a dove, and the voice of the Father declares, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. In going down into the water, it's as if Jesus has electrified the water of baptism with the descending Spirit. For Jesus to identify himself with sinful human beings in baptism is incredible, but even more miraculous is that now sinful human beings are identified with the triune God in the baptismal waters. The descent of the Spirit, the declaration of being a beloved child with whom the Father is well pleased, these things are now given to all who are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Our lectionary texts, as they so often do, are singing in harmony this week, and they highlight a brightness in the gospel message that I think often gets occluded in the way that many of us have heard it and tell it. The Western church, especially in the Reformed tradition, tend to begin the gospel message by emphasizing our legal guiltiness before God. That we are, as the phrase goes, guilty as sin. And this indebtedness is such that we require God's forgiveness and his righteousness in order to stand before him. I believe that scripture teaches this, and it's very important. But it is a bit truncated, and it's by no means the only way that scripture talks about what God is doing in working out our salvation. Though we have cut ourselves off from the life of God and are therefore tending back toward decay and non-existence, the eternal word holds all things together in his power, and he has, in his goodness, willed that we exist. You've heard me quote this from St. Athanasius' book on the Incarnation before, but I have to do it again. He says, For God has not only created us from nothing, but has also granted us by the grace of the word to live a life according to God. But human beings turning away from things eternal and by the counsel of the devil, turning us toward things of corruption, were themselves the cause of corruption in death. Therefore, since the rational creatures, us, were being corrupted and such works of God were perishing, what should God being good do? Permit the corruption prevailing against them and death to seize them? God has created us out of nothing, brought us into existence from non-existence, and said that we are very good. But in Adam, each of us has turned away from things eternal, and the devil convinced us to turn ourselves instead toward things of corruption. So I'll remind you again, evil is not a thing. It simply doesn't exist. Evil is non-existence. It is the corruption of God's good things. We chose a thing that doesn't exist, which has led us to corruption, with death holding the greater sway, as Athanasius says. These very good works of God, human beings, were disappearing, being obliterated, perishing. And so St. Athanasius asks the question with such force, what should a good God do? It's not his fault. The answer, of course, as we've heard in so many different ways in our lessons this evening, is to rescue us as we languish in weakness. As Isaiah says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. We have been held captive to corruption by the devil, unable to free ourselves. But in that, we can now hear the good news when John the Baptist says, there is one who is stronger than me who is going to immerse you in the divine life. That's what it means to be baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Can you hear the good news when Peter says to Cornelius, a Gentile, in our New Testament lesson, that Jesus went about preaching peace and that God anointed this Jesus with the Spirit and power as he went about healing all who were oppressed by the devil? How does this happen? How is the curse of death and imprisonment of all mankind undone? 
Well, as the church sings at Easter, Christ has trampled down death by death. This night, the baptism of Christ is where we bridge Christmas and Easter. As Athanasius was so apt to point out, the word was incorruptible and so needed to take on flesh in order that he might experience death and thereby undo death's grip on his creation. That's why Christmas happens, is so that Good Friday and Easter may follow. Athanasius tells us that Christ banished death from humanity as straw from fire. In going down into the baptismal waters, Christ's holy presence sanctifies the waters of baptism for our sake, that we too might be sanctified and brought to life in him. I want to suggest to you that this ransom that the baptized have been given, this victory over death through Christ, should cause us to respond in at least two ways. I'm only going to give you two. The first is that we must follow Christ from the font into the desert. If you've read any of the gospel accounts, you know that after his baptism, Christ is immediately led by the Spirit into the desert where he will be tempted by the devil. And there he will recapitulate the sojourn of Israel. But unlike Israel, Christ responds to the devil's temptations with faith in his Father and utter reliance upon the Spirit. As we approach the season of Lent in just a few short weeks, we too are being called into the spiritual battle. The Spirit has been given to us that we might mortify the flesh. As St. Peter writes, his divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Thus he has given us through these things his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of lust and may become participants of the divine nature. For this very reason, you must make every effort to support your faith with goodness and goodness with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with endurance and endurance with godliness and godliness with mutual affection and mutual affection with love. For if these things are yours and are increasing among you, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been given everything we need in Jesus Christ. As we are clothed with him in baptism, we are adopted as full heirs. But as St. Gregory of Nyssa reminds us, it is that after the dignity of adoption, that the devil plots more vehemently against us, pining away with envious glance when he beholds the beauty of the newborn man, earnestly tending towards that heavenly city from which he fell. And he raises up against us fiery temptations, seeking earnestly to despoil us of that second adornment as he did of our former array. The devil wants to take away your new life as he took away Adam and Eve's life. Baptism and spiritual warfare are linked. They are linked in Christ's own life, and they are linked in those who live in him. So it is that even now we cast our gaze toward Lent, not simply as a time for us to put to death the sin that so easily entangles us. That should be our practice at all times. But we look toward Lent as a time for us to give up even those good things of creation, things like the wine and oil of gladness, 
so that we may, as St. John of the Cross so aptly says, raise our appetites above childish things and discover in this spiritual food the savor of all things. Friends, do not be ignorant of the plots of the devil as he pines away with envious glance at the beauty of your newborn self, wrapped in the glory of Christ. We must follow Christ from the font to the desert. And may we be those to whom King Jesus says, as he says in the book of Revelation, to the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The second response we should make to the ransom we have been given through Christ is joyful proclamation. All of our life should be a living icon of joy in Christ, not as a denial of the pain and sorrow of the world, but as an expression that all of our life is no longer the life of dust and death in our father Adam, but is the life of immortality given to us in Christ, the very Son of God. As Hippolytus of Rome said, the father of immortality sent his immortal son and word into the world. He came to us to cleanse us with water and the spirit, to give us a new birth that would make our bodies and souls immortal. He breathed into us the spirit of life and armed us with incorruptibility. Therefore, Hippolytus says, in a herald's voice I cry, people of every nation, come and receive the immortality given in baptism. To you who have spent all your days in the darkness of ignorance, I bring the good news of life. Leave your slavery for freedom, the tyrant's yoke for a kingdom, corruptibility for eternal life. Do you wish to know how to do this? By water and the Holy Spirit. This is to say, by the water through which we are born again and given life, and by the Spirit who is the comforter sent for your sake to make you a child of God. Hippolytus, I think, bridges these two responses to the ransom we have been given for us. His joyful declaration isn't just a bunch of fancy words strung together. It was what he lived in his life. The legend of his martyrdom is that when he was called upon to refuse and deny Christ, he refused to do so. And legend has it that his entire household was beheaded before him. And then he himself was dragged by horses across the stones until he died. Hippolytus understood that Jesus Christ is the king of the entire universe, all of it, and that his judgment is the only one that matters. His judgment is the only one that matters, not the judgment of your boss or your bank account, not the judgment of your partners or your parents, not the judgment of your government or your greatest accomplishments or failures. None of those things can judge you. Only Christ. And to be baptized in him, Oh, with what joy, what rapturous joy we can sing 
The Lord has clothed me head to foot in his redemption, thrown around me the cloak of his love, and made me holy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit.